Section 13 of The Golden Bell, Volume 1. Part 1. The Magic Art of the Evolution of Kings, Volume 1. By James Fraser. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information on a volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Chapter 6. Magicians as Kings. Part 1. Social importance of magicians and their rise to the position of chiefs or kings. The foregoing evidence may satisfy us that in many lands and many races magic has claimed to control the great forces of nature for the good of man. If that has been so, the practitioners of the art must necessarily be personages of importance and influence in any society which puts faith in their extravagant pretensions, and it would be no matter for surprise if by virtue of the reputation which they enjoy and of the awe which they inspire some of them should attain to the highest position of authority in point of fact magicians appear to have often developed into chiefs and kings but magic is not the only road by which men have travelled to a throne not that magic is the only or perhaps even the main road by which men have travelled to a throne the lust of power the desire to domineer over our fellows is among the commonest and the strongest of human passions and no doubt men of a masterful character have sought to satisfy it in many different ways and have attained by many different means to the goal of their ambition. A sword, for example, in a strong hand has unquestionably done for many what the magician's wand in a deft hand appears to have done for some. Complexity of the social phenomena and the danger of simplifying them unduly by our hypothesis. He who investigates the history of institutions should constantly bear in mind the extreme complexity of the causes which have built up the fabric of human society, and should be on his guard against the subtle danger incidental to all science, the tendency to simplify unduly the infinite variety of the phenomena by fixing our attention on a few of them to the exclusion of the rest. The propensity to excessive simplification is indeed natural to the mind of man, since it is only by abstraction and generalization which necessarily imply the neglect of a multitude of particulars that he can stretch his puny faculties so as to embrace a minute portion of the illuminate vastness of the universe. But if the propensity is natural and even inevitable, it is nevertheless fraught with peril, since it is apt to narrow and falsify our conception of any subject under investigation. To correct it partially, or to correct it wholly would require an infinite intelligence. We must endeavour to broaden our views by taking account of a wide range of facts and possibilities. And when we have done so to the utmost of our power, we must still remember that from the very nature of things our ideas fall immeasurably short of the reality. This propensity to excessive simplification has done much to discredit the study of primitive mythology and religion. In no branch of learning, perhaps, has this process to an attractive but fallacious simplicity wrought more havoc than in the investigation of the early history of mankind. In particular, the excesses to which it has been carried have done much to discredit the study of primitive mythology and religion. Students of these subjects have been far too ready to pounce on any theory which adequately explains some of the facts, and forthwith to stretch it so as to cover them all. And when the theory, thus unduly strained, has broken, as was to be expected in their unskilful hands, they have petulantly thrown it aside in disgust instead of restricting it, as they should have done from the outset, to the particular class of facts to which it is really applicable. So it fared in our youth with the solar myth theory, which, after being unreasonably exaggerated by its friends, has long been quite as unreasonably rejected altogether by its adversaries. And in more recent times, the theories of totemism, magic, and taboo 
to take only a few conspicuous examples, have similarly suffered from the excessive seal of injudicious advocates. This instability of judgment, this tendency of anthropological opinion to swing to and fro from one extreme to another with every breath of new discovery, is perhaps the principal reason why the whole study is still viewed askance by men of sober and cautious temper, who naturally look with suspicion on idols that are set up and worshipped, one day only to be knocked down and travelled underfoot the next. To these cool observers, Max Muller and the rosy dawn of the 19th century stand on the same dusty shelf with Jacob Bryant and Noah's Ark in the 18th, and they expect, with a sarcastic smile, the time when the fashionable anthropological topics of the present day will, in their turn, be consigned to the same peaceful limbo of forgotten absurdities. It is not for the anthropologist himself to anticipate the verdict of posterity on his labours. Still, it is his humble hope that the facts which he has patiently amassed will be found sufficiently numerous and solid to bear the weight of some, at least, of the conclusions which she rests upon them, so that these can never again be lightly tossed aside as the fantastic dreams of a mere bookish student. At the same time, if he is wise, he will be forward to acknowledge and proclaim that our hypotheses at best are but partial, not universal, solutions of the manifold problems which confront us, and that in science, as in daily life, it is vain to look for one key to open all locks. The practice of magic explains the rise of kings in some communities, but not in all. Therefore, to revert to our immediate subject, in putting forward the practice of magic as an explanation of the rise of monarchy in some communities, I am far from thinking or suggesting that it can explain the rise of it in all, or in other words, that kings are universally the descendants or successors of magicians, and if anyone should hereafter, as it is likely enough, either enunciate such a theory or attribute it to me. I desire to enter my caveat against it in advance. To enumerate and describe all the modes in which men have pushed, or fought, or wormed their way by force or by fraud, by their own courage and wisdom, or by their cowardice and folly of others, to supreme power might furnish the theme of a political treatise such as I have no pretension to write. For my present purpose, it suffices if I can trace the magician's progress in some savage and barbarous tribes from the rank of a sorcerer to the dignity of a king. The facts which I am about to lay before the reader seem to exhibit various steps of this development from simple conjuring up to the conjuring compound with despotism. Social Importance of Magicians Among the Aborigines of Central Australia Let us begin by looking at the lowest race of men as to whom we possess comparatively full and accurate information the Aborigines of Australia. These savages are ruled neither by chiefs nor kings. So far as the tribes can be said to have a political constitution, it is a democracy, or rather an oligarchy, of old and influential men who meet in council and decide on all measures of importance to the practical exclusion of the younger men. Their deliberative assembly answers to the Senate of later times. If we had to coin a word for such a government of elders, we might call it a genontocracy. The elders who in Aboriginal Australia thus meet and direct the affairs of their tribe appear to be, for the most part, the headmen of their respective totem clans. Now in Central Australia, where the desert nature of their country and the almost complete isolation from foreign influences have retarded progress and preserved the natives, on the whole, in the most primitive state, the headmen of the various totem clans are charged with the important task of performing magical ceremonies for the multiplication of the totems and as the great majority of the totems are edible animals or plants, 
It follows that these men are commonly expected to provide the people with food by means of magic. Others have to make the rain to fall or to render other services to the community. In short, among the tribes of Central Australia, the headmen are public magicians. Further, the most important function is to take charge of the sacred storehouse, usually a cleft in the rocks or a hole in the ground, where are kept the holy stones and sticks, charinga, with which the souls of all the people, both living and dead, are apparently supposed to be in a manner bound up. Thus, while the headmen have certainly to perform what we should call civil duties, such as to inflict punishment for breaches of tribal custom, their principal functions are sacred or magical. Social importance of magicians among the Aborigines of southeastern Australia. Again, in the tribes of southeastern Australia, the headman was often, sometimes invariably, a magician. Thus, in the southern Waridjuri tribe, the headman was always a wizard or a medicine man. There was one for each local division. He called the people together for the initiation ceremonies or to discuss matters of public importance. In the Eirikla mining tribe, the medicine men are the headmen. They are called Mobang Bai, from Mobang, magic. They decide disputes, arrange marriages, conduct the ceremonies of initiation, and in certain circumstances, settle the formalities to be observed in ordeals of battle. In fact, they wield authority in the tribe and give orders where others only make requests. Again, in the uni tribe, there was a headman for each local division, and in order to be fitted for his office, he had, among other qualifications, to be a medicine man. Above all, he must be able to perform magical feats at the initiation ceremonies. The greatest headman of all was he who, on these occasions, could bring up the largest number of things out of his inside. In fact, the budding statesman and king must be first and foremost a conjurer in the most literal sense of the world. Some forty or fifty years ago, the principal headman of the Dairi tribe was a certain Jalina Piramarana, who was known among the colonists as the Frenchman on account of his polished manners. He was not only a brave and skilful warrior, but also a powerful medicine man, greatly feared by the neighbouring tribes, who sent him presents, even from a distance of a hundred miles. He boasted of being the tree of life, for he was the head of a totem consisting of a particular sort of seed which forms at certain times the chief vegetable food of these tribes. His people spoke of him as the plant itself, Manura, which yields the edible seed. Again, an early writer on the tribes of southwestern Australia, near King George's Sound, tells us that the individuals who possess most influence are the Malgaradocs, or doctors. A Malgaradoc is considered to possess the power of driving away wind or rain, as well as bringing down lightning or disease upon any object of their or others' hatred, and they also attempt to heal the sick. On the whole, then, it is highly significant that in the most primitive society about which we are accurately informed, it is especially the magicians or medicine men who appear to have been in process of developing into chiefs. Social importance of magicians in New Guinea When we pass from Australia to New Guinea, we find that, though the natives stand at a far higher level of culture than the Australian Aborigines, the constitution of society among them is still essentially democratic or oligarchic, and chieftainship exists only in embryo. Thus Sir William MacGregor tells us that in British New Guinea, no one has ever risen wise enough, bold enough, and strong enough to become the despot even of a single district. The nearest approach to this has been the very distant one of some person becoming a renowned wizard, but that has only resulted in living a certain amount of blackmail. To the same effect, a Catholic missionary observes that in New Guinea, the Nepal or sorcerers are everywhere. They boast of their misdeeds. 
Everybody fears them. Everybody accuses them. And after all, nothing positive is known of their secret practices. This cursed brood is, as it were, the soul of the Palpuan life. Nothing happens without the sorcerer's intervention. Wars, marriages, diseases, deaths, expeditions, fishing, hunting, always and everywhere the sorcerer. One thing is certain for them, that they do not regard it as an article of faith, but as a fact patent and indisputable, and that is the extraordinary power of the Nepu. He is the master of life and of death. Hence it is only natural that they should fear him and obey him in everything and give him all that he asks for. The Nepu is not a chief, but he domineers over the chiefs, and we may say that the true authority, the only effective influence in New Guinea, is that of the Nepu. Nothing can resist him. We are told that in the Tairopi or Montumutu tribe of British New Guinea, chiefs have not necessarily supernatural powers, but that a sorcerer is looked upon as a chief. Some years ago, for example, one man of the tribe was a chief because he was supposed to rule the sea, calming it or rousing it to fury at his pleasure. Another owed his power to his skill in making the rain to fall, the sun to shine, and the plantations to bear fruit. It is believed that the chief of Moat in British New Guinea can affect the growth of crops for good or ill, and coax the turtle and dugon to come from all parts of the sea and allow themselves to be caught. At Portal Bay in British New Guinea, there are magicians, Taniwaga, who are expected to manage certain departments of nature for the good of the community by means of charms, bari, which are known only to them. One of these men, for example, works magic for rain, another for taro, another for wallaby, and another for fish. A magician who is believed to control an important department of nature may be the chief of his community. Thus the present chief of Wadao is a sorcerer who can make rain and raise or calm winds. He is greatly respected by all and receives many presents. A chief of Colim, on Finch Harbour in German New Guinea, enjoyed a great reputation as a magician. It was supposed that he could make wind and storm, rain and sunshine, and visit his enemies with sickness and death. Supposed magical or supernatural powers of chiefs in Melanesia. Turning now to the natives of the Melanesian islands, which stretched an immense quadrant of a circle round New Guinea and Australia on the east, we are told by Dr. Codrington that among these savages, as a matter of fact, the power of chiefs has hitherto rested upon the belief in their supernatural power derived from the spirits or ghosts with which they had intercourse. As this belief has failed, in the Banks Islands, for example, some time ago, the position of a chief has tended to become obscure, and as this belief has now been generally undermined, a new kind of chief must needs arise unless a time of anarchy is to begin. According to a native Melanesian account, the origin of the power of chiefs lies entirely in the belief that they have communication with mighty ghosts, Tindalo, and wield that supernatural power, Mana, whereby they can bring the influence of the ghost to bear. If a chief imposed a fine, it was paid because the people universally dreaded his ghostly power, and firmly believed that he could inflict calamity and sickness upon such as resisted him. As soon as any considerable number of his people began to disbelieve in his influence with the ghosts, his power to levy fines was shaken. In Mello, one of the new Hebrides, the highest nobility consists of those persons who have sacrificed a thousand little pigs to the souls of their ancestors. No one ever resists a man of that exalted rank, because in him are supposed to dwell all the souls of the ancient chiefs and all the spirits who preside over the tribe. In the northern New Hebrides, the son does not inherit the chieftainship, but he inherits, if his father can manage it, 
what gives him the chieftainship, namely his father's supernatural power, his charms, magical songs, stones, and apparatus, and his knowledge of the way to approach spiritual beings. A chief in the island of Parramatta informed a European that he had the power of making rain, wind, storm, thunder and lightning, and dry weather. He exhibited as his magical instrument a piece of bamboo with some partially coloured rags attached to it. In this bamboo, he said, were kept the devils of rain and wind, and when he commanded them to discharge their office or to lie still, they were obliged to obey, being his subjects and prisoners. When he had given his orders to these captive devils, the bamboo had to be fastened to the highest point of his house. In the Marshall Bennett Islands to the east of New Guinea, it was the duty of each chief of the clan to charm the gardens of his clan so as to make them productive. The charm consisted of turning up part of the soil of a long stick and muttering an appropriate spell. Each special crop, such as yams, bananas, sugarcane and coconuts, had a special kind of stick and its special spell. Magicians as Chiefs in New Britain With regard to government among the Melanesians of New Britain, or the Bismarck Archipelago, I may cite the evidence of an experienced missionary, the Reverend Dr. George Brown, who settled in the islands at a time when no other white man was living in the group, and who resided among the savage islanders for some five or six years. He says, There was no government so called in New Britain except that former jurisdiction or power represented by the secret societies and that exercised by chiefs, who were supposed to possess exceptional powers of sorcery and witchcraft. These powers were very real, owing, I think, principally to two reasons. One of which was that the men themselves thoroughly believed that they were the possessors of the powers which they claimed, and the other was that the people themselves believed that the men really possessed them. There was indeed the title of chief, Todaru, claimed and also given to them by the people. But this was not the result of any election or necessarily by inheritance. It was simply that a certain man claimed to be the professor of these powers and succeeded in convincing the people that he really possessed them. Again, Dr. Brown tells us that in New Britain, a ruling chief was always supposed to exercise priestly functions, that is, he professed to be in constant communication with the Teperans, spirits, and through their influence he was enabled to bring rain or sunshine, fair winds or foul ones, sickness or health, success or disaster in war, and generally to procure any blessing or curse for which the applicant was willing to pay a sufficient price. If his spells did not produce the desired effect, he always had a plausible explanation ready, which was generally accepted as a sufficient excuse. I think much of the success which these men undoubtedly had was due to their keen observation of natural phenomena and to the effects of fear upon the people. Dr. Turner on the power of magical disease makers in Tanna According to Dr. Turner, the real gods at Tanna may be said to be the disease makers. It is surprising how these men are dreaded, and how firm the belief is that they have in their hands the power of life and death. There are rain-makers and thunder-makers, and fly and mosquito-makers, and a host of other sacred men, but the disease-makers are the most dreaded. It is believed that these men can create disease and death by burning what is called nahuk. Nahuk means rubbish, but principally refuse of food. Everything of the kind they bury or throw into the sea, lest the disease-makers should get hold of it. These fellows are always about, and consider it their special business to pick up and burn, with certain formalities, anything that the nahuk line which comes in their way. If a disease maker sees the skin of a banana, for instance, he picks it up, wraps it in the leaf, and wears it all day hanging round his neck. The people stare as they see him go along and say to each other, he has got something, he will do for somebody by and by at night. 
In the evening, he scrapes some bark off a tree, mixes it up with a banana skin, rolls all up tightly in a leaf in the form of a cigar, and then puts the one end close enough to the fire to cause it to singe and smolder and burn away very gradually. Presently, he hears a shell blowing. There, he says to his friends, there it is. That is a man whose rubbish I am now burning. He is ill. Let us stop burning and see what they bring in the morning. When a person is taken ill, he believes that it is occasioned by someone burning his rubbish. Instead of thinking about medicine, he calls someone to blow a shell, a large conch or other shell, which, then perforated and blown, can be heard two or three miles off. The meaning of it is to implore the person who is supposed to be burning the sick man's rubbish and causing all the pain to stop burning, and it is a promise as well that a present will be taken in the morning. The greater the pain, the more they blow the shell, and when the pain abates, they cease, supposing that the disease-maker has been kind enough to stop burning. Night after night, the silence is broken by the dismal toot-toot-tooing of these shells. In the morning, the friends of the sufferer repair to the disease-maker with the presence of pigs, mats, hatchets, beads, whales' teeth, or such like things. Thus the sorcerer has attained to a position of immense power and influence, and acquire wealth by purely maleficent magic. It is not by the imaginary benefits which they confer on the community, but by the imaginary evils which they inflict on individuals, that they climb the steps of a throne, or the ladder that leads up to heaven. For according to Dr. Turner, these rascals are on the high road to divinity. The process which they employ to accomplish their ends is a simple application of the principles of contagious magic. Whatever has once been in contact with a person remains in sympathetic connection with him, always, and harm done to it is therefore harm done to him. Side by side with the evil which this superstition produces, on the one hand by inspiring men with baseless terrors, and on the other by leading them to neglect effectual remedies for real evils, we must recognise the benefit which it incidentally confers on society by causing people to clear away and destroy the refuse of their food and other rubbish which if suffered to accumulate about their dwellings might, by polluting the atmosphere, prove a real, not an imaginary source of disease. In practice, cleanliness based on motives of superstition may be just as effective for the preservation of health as if it were founded on the best ascertained principles of sanitary science. Evolution of Chiefs of Kings out of Magicians, especially out of Rainmakers in Africa Still rising in the scale of culture we come to Africa where both the chiefmanship and the kingship are fully developed, and here the evidence for the evolution of the chief out of the magician, and especially out of the rainmaker, is comparatively plentiful. Power of the magicians among the Wambergui, Wetapturn, and Wagogo of East Africa. Thus among the Wambugwe, a Bantu people of East Africa, the original form of government was a family republic, but the enormous power of the sorcerers, transmitted by inheritance, soon raised them to the rank of petty lords or chiefs. Of the three chiefs living in the country, by 1894, two were much dreaded as magicians, and the wealth of cattle they possessed came to them almost wholly in the shape of presents bestowed for their services in that capacity. Their principal art was that of rainmaking. The chiefs of Wataturu, Another people of East Africa are said to be nothing but sorcerers destitute of any direct political influence. Again, among the Wagogo of German East Africa, the main power of the chiefs, we are told, is derived from the art of rain-making. If a chief cannot make rain himself, he must procure it from someone who can. Among the Maasai, the supreme chief is always the powerful medicine man. Again, in the powerful Maasai nation of the same region, the medicine men are not uncommonly the chiefs, 
and the supreme chiefs of the race is almost invariably a powerful medicine man. These laymen, as they are called, are priests as well as doctors, skilled in interpreting omens and dreams, in averting ill luck, and in making rain. The head chief or medicine man, who has been called the Maasai Pope, is expected not only to make rain, but to repel and destroy the enemies of the Maasai in war by his magic art. The following is Captain Mirko's account of the Maasai Pope. The most prominent clan of the whole Maasai people is the Engidun, because to it belong not only the family of the chief, all Oboni, but also the family of the magicians. The designation chief is, strictly speaking, not quite correct, since the chief, Ol Oboni, does not govern directly and exercises no real administrative function. He rules only indirectly. The firm belief of his subjects in his prophetic gifts and his supernatural power of sorcery gives him an influence on the destinies of the people. Despotism and cruelty, such as we find among all Negro rulers, are alien to him. He is not so much a ruler as a national saint or patriarch. The people speak of his sacred person with shy awe, and no man dares to appear before this mighty personage without being summoned. The aim of his policy is to unite and strengthen the Maasai, while he allows free play to the predatory instincts of the warriors and raids and other tribes. He guides his own people from the scourge of civil war, to which the ceaseless quarrels of the various districts with each other would otherwise continually give occasion. This influence of his is rendered possible by the belief that victory can only be achieved through the secret power of the war medicine, which none but he can compound, and that defeat would infallibly follow if he were to predict it. Neither he nor his nearest relatives march with the army to war. He supplies remedies, generally in the shape of magical medicines, for plagues and sicknesses, and he appoints festivals of prayer in honour of the Messiah God, Nagai. He delivers these predictions by means of an oracular game, like the telling of beads, and just as Samson's miraculous strength went from him when his hair was shorn, so it is believed that the head chief of the Maasai would lose his supernatural powers if his chin was shaved. According to one writer, the Maasai Pope has never more than one eye. The father knocks out his son's eye in order to qualify him for the holy office. Among the Mandai of British East Africa, the principal medicine man is the supreme chief. Among the Mandai of British East Africa, the Okuriot, or principal medicine man, holds precisely the same position as the Maasai or Oiboni. That is to say, he is supreme chief of the whole race. He is a diviner and foretells the future by casting stones, inspecting entrails, interpreting dreams, and prophesying when he is drunk. The Nandai believe implicitly in his powers. He tells them when to begin planting their crops. In time of drought, he procures rain for them either directly or by means of the rainmakers. He makes women and cattle fruitful and no war party can expect to be successful if he has not approved of the foray. His office is hereditary, and his person is usually regarded as absolutely sacred. Nobody may approach him with weapons in his hand, or speak in his presence unless the great man dresses him, and it is most important that nobody should touch his head, else it is feared that his powers of divination and so forth would depart from him. However, one of these sacred pontiffs was clubbed to death, being held responsible for several public calamities, to wit, famine, sickness, and defeat in war. The Suk and Turkana, two other peoples of British East Africa, distinguish between their chiefs and their medicine men who wield great power, but very often the medicine man is a chief by virtue of his skill in medicine or the occult arts. Rainmakers as chief among the tribes of the Upper Nile. Again, among the tribes of the Upper Nile, the medicine men are generally the chiefs. 
Their authority rests above all upon their supposed power of making rain, for the rain is the one thing which matters to the people in those districts, as if it does not come down at the right time, it means untold hardships for the community. It is therefore small wonder that men more cunning than their fellows should arrogate to themselves the power of producing it, or that having gained such a reputation, they should trade on the credulity of their simpler neighbours. Hence most of the chiefs of these tribes are rainmakers, and enjoy popularity in proportion to their powers to give rain to their people at the proper season. Rain-making chiefs always build their villages on the slopes of a fairly high hill, as they no doubt know that the hills attract the clouds, and that they are therefore fairly safe in their weather forecasts. Each of these rainmakers has a number of rain stones, such as rock crystal, eventurine, and amethyst, which he keeps in a pot. When he wishes to produce rain, he plunges the stones in water, and taking in his hand a peeled cane, which is split at the top, he beckons with it to the clouds to come or waves them away in the way they should go, muttering an incantation the while. Or he pours water and the entrails of a sheep or goat into a hollow in a stone, and then sprinkles the water towards the sky. Though the chief acquires wealth by the exercise of his supposed magical powers, he often perhaps generally comes to a violent end, for in time of drought the angry people assemble and kill him, believing that it is he who prevents the rain from falling. Yet the office is usually hereditary and passes from father to son. Among the tribes which cherish these beliefs and observe these customs are the Latuka, Bari, Lalulba, and Lakoya. Rainmakers as chase among the Latuka. Thus, for example, with regard to the Latuka, we are told that amongst the most important but also the most dangerous occupations of the greater chiefs is the procuring of rain for their country. Almost all the greater chiefs enjoy the reputation of being rainmakers, and the requisite knowledge usually passes by inheritance from father to son. However, there are also here, and there are among the natives persons who, without being chiefs, busy themselves with rainmaking. If there has been no rain in a district for a long time, and the people wish to attract it for the sake of the sowing, they apply it to their chief, bring him a present of sheep, goats, or in urgent cases, cattle or a girl, and if the present seems to him sufficient, he promises to furnish rain. But if it appears to him too little, he asks for more. If some days pass without rain, it gives the magician opportunity for claiming fresh presents, on the ground that the smallness of the offered gifts hinders the coming of the rain. When the cupidity of the rainmaker is satisfied, he goes to work in the usual way, pouring water over two flat stones, one called the male and the other female, till they are covered to a depth of three inches. The male stone is a common white quartz. The female is brownish. If still no rain falls, he makes a smoky fire in the open with certain herbs, and if the smoke mounts straight up, rain is near. Although an unsuccessful rainmaker is often banished or killed, his son always succeeds him in the dignity. Amongst the Barry, the procedure of the rain-making chief to draw down the water from heaven is somewhat elaborate. He has many rainstones consisting of rock crystals and pink and green granite. These are deposited in the hollows of some twenty slabs of gneiss, and across the hollows are laid numerous iron rods of various shapes and sizes. When rain is to be made, these iron rods are set up in a perpendicular position, and water is poured on the crystals and stones. Then the rainmaker takes up the stones one by one and oils them, praying to his dead father to send the rain. Praying to his dead father to send the rain. One of the iron rods is provided with a hook, and another is a two-headed spear. With the hook, the rainmaker hooks and attracts the rain clouds. With the two-headed spear, he attracts and drives them away. 
In this procedure, the prayer to the dead ancestor is religious, while the rest of the ceremony is magical. Thus, as so often happens, the savage seeks to compass his object by combining magic with religion. The logical inconsistency does not trouble him, provided he attains his end. Further, the rainmaker chief of the Barry is supposed to be able to make women fruitful. For this purpose, he takes an iron rod with a hollow bulb at each end, in which are small stones. Grasping the rod by the middle, he shakes it over the would-be mother, rattling the stones and muttering an incantation. Magical Powers of Chiefs Among the Bongo and Dinikas Again among the Bongo, a tribe of the same region. The influence of the chiefs is said to rest in great part on a belief in their magical powers, for the belief is credited with the knowledge of certain roots, which are the only means of communicating with the dangerous spirits of whose mischievous pranks the Bongo stand in great fear. In the Dingo or Dinga nation, to the northeast of the Bongo, men who are supposed to be in close communication with spirits past or omnipotent. It is believed that they make rain, conjure away all calamities, foresee the future, exercise evil spirits, know all that goes on even at a distance, have the wild beasts in their service, and can call down every kind of disaster on their enemies. One of these men became the richest and most esteemed chief for the Kik tribe through his skill in ventriloquism. He kept a cage from which the roars of imaginary lions and the howls of imaginary hyenas were heard to proceed, and he gave out that these beasts guarded his house and were ready at his bidding to rush forth on his enemies. The dread which he infused into the tribe and his neighbours was incredible. From all sides oxen were sent to him as presents, so that his herds were the most numerous in the country. Another of these conjurers in the Tuuk tribe had a real tame lion and four real fat snakes, which he kept in front of his door, to the great awe of the natives, who could only attribute the pacific demeanour of these ferocious animals to sorcery. But it does not appear that the real lion inspired nearly so much terror as the imaginary one, from which we may perhaps infer that among these people ventriloquism is a more solid basis of political power even than lion taming. Chiefs and Kings as Rainmakers in Central Africa in Central Africa, again, the Lindu tribe to the west of Lake Albert firmly believe that certain people possess the power of making rain. Among them, the rainmaker either is a chief or almost invariably becomes one. The Banyoro also have a great respect for the dispensers of rain, whom they lure with a profusion of gifts. The great dispenser, he who has absolute uncontrollable power over the rain, is the king, but he can depute his power to other persons so that the benefit may be distributed and the heavenly water laid on over the various parts of the kingdom. A Catholic missionary observes that a superstition common to the different peoples of equatorial Africa attributes to the petty kings of the country the exclusive power of making the rain to fall. In extreme cases the power is ascribed to certain kings more privileged than the rest, such as those of Huila, Humbre, Fare, Libebe, and others. These kings profit by this superstition in order to draw to themselves many presents of cattle, but the rain must fall after the sacrifice of an ox, and if it tarries, the king, who is never at a loss for excuses to extricate himself from the scrape, will ascribe the failure to the defects of the victim, and will seize the pretext to claim more cattle. Among the Bayaka, a tribe of the Kasi district in the Congo Free State, magicians are exempt from justice, and the chief is a principal magician. And among the Banyazi, another tribe of the same district, there is, or was, a few years ago, a chief who passed for the greatest magician in the country. Medicine men as chiefs in Western Africa In Western as well as in Eastern and Central Africa, we meet with the same union of chiefly with magical functions. Thus, in the Fan tribe, the strict distinction between chief and medicine man does not exist. 
The chief is also a medicine man and a smith to boot, for the fans esteem the smith's craft sacred, and none but chiefs may meddle with it. The chiefs of the Ossidinj district in the Cameroons have as such very little influence over their subjects, but if the chief happens to be also the fetish priest, as he generally is among the Ekois, he has not only powerful influence in all fetish matters, and most of the vile interests of the people are bound up with fetish worship, but he also enjoys great authority in general. A few years ago, the head chief of Tetin on the Cross River in southern Nigeria was an old man whom the people had compelled to take office in order that he should look after the fetishes or jujus and work magic for the benefit of the community. In accordance with the old custom, which is binding on the head chief, he was never allowed to leave his compound, that is, to ensure in which his house stands. He gave the following account of himself to an English official who paid him a visit. I have been shut up ten years. But being an old man, I don't miss my freedom. I am the oldest man of the town, and they keep me here to look after the jujus, and to conduct the rites celebrated when women are about to give birth to children, and other ceremonies of the same kind. By the observance and performance of these ceremonies, I bring game to the hunter, cause the yam crop to be good, bring fish to the fishermen, and make rain to fall. So they bring me meat, yams, fish, etc. To make rain, I drink water and squat it out, and pray to our big deities. If I were to go outside this compound, I should fall down dead on returning to this hut. My wives cut my hair and nails and take great care of the pairings. Chiefs as Rainmakers in Southern Africa As to the relation between the offices of Chief and Rainmaker in South Africa, a well-informed writer observes, In very old days the Chief was the great Rainmaker of the tribe. Some Chiefs allowed no one else to compete with them least a successful rainmaker should be chosen as chief. There was also another reason. The rainmaker was sure to become a rich man if he gained a great reputation. And it would manifestly never do for the chief to allow any one to be too rich. The rainmaker exerts tremendous control over the people, and so it would be most important to keep this function connected with royalty. Tradition always places the power of making rain as the fundamental glory of ancient chiefs and heroes, and it seems probable then it may have been the origin of chieftainship. The man who made the rain would naturally become the chief. In the same way, Chaka, the famous Zulu despot, used to declare that he was the only diviner in the country, for if he allowed rivals, his life would be insecure. These South African rainmakers smear themselves with mud and sacrifice oxen as an essential part of the charm. Almost everything is thought to turn to the colour of the beasts. Thus, Umbandine, the old king of the Swazis, had huge herds of cattle of a peculiar colour, which was particularly well adapted for the production of rain. Hence deputations came to him from distant tribes, praying and bribing him to make rain by the sacrifice of his cattle, and he used to threaten to bind up the sky if they did not satisfy his demands. The power which by these means he welded was enormous. Similarly, Mablan, a chief of the Bewinda, in the northeastern corner of the Transvaal, enjoyed a wide reputation and was revered beyond the limits of his own tribe because he was credited with the power of rainmaking, a greater power in the eyes of natives than that of the Asagai. Hence he was constantly importuned by other chiefs to exercise his power and received valuable presents of girls, oxen, and red and green bees as inducements to turn on the heavenly water tap. The Power of Rainmakers Among the Matabils among the Matabels of South Africa, the witch doctors are supposed to be on speaking terms with spirits, 
and their influence is described as tremendous. In the time of King Lobengula, some years ago, their power was as great as, if not greater than, the king's. Similarly speaking of the South African tribes in general, Dr. Moffat says that the rainmaker is, in the estimation of the people, no mean personage, possessing an influence over the minds of the people superior even to that of the king, who is likewise compelled to yield to the dictates of this artificial. In Matabella land, the rainy season falls in November, December, January, and February. For several weeks before the rain sets in, the clouds gather in heavy banks, dark and lowering. Then the king is busy with his magicians, compounding potions of wondrous strength to make the labouring clouds discharge their pent-up burden on the thirsty earth. He may be seen gazing at every black cloud, for his people flock from all parts to beg rain from him, their rainmaker, for their parched fields, and they thank and praise him when a heavy rain has fallen. The King of the Matabels is Rainmaker A letter dated from Balawayo, the 12th of November, 1880, records that Lobangula, king of the Matavels, arrived yesterday evening at his corral of the White Rocks. He brought with him the rain to his people. For according to the ideas of the Matavels, it is a king who ought to make the rain and the good season in all senses of the word. Now Lobangula had chosen well the day and the hour, for it was in the midst of a tremendous storm that the king made his solemn entrance into the capital. He must now, at the arrival of the king and of the rain, gives rise every year to a little festival. For the rain is the great benefit conferred by the king, the pledge of future harvests and of plenty after eight months of desolating drought. To bring down the needed showers, the king of the Matabels boils a magic hell broth in a cauldron, which sends up volumes of stain to the blue sky. But to make assurance doubly sure, he has recourse to religion as well as to magic, for he sacrifices twelve black oxen to the spirits of his fathers, and prays to them. O great spirits of my father and grandfather, I thank you for having granted last year to my people more wheat than our enemies. The Mashonas. This year also, in gratitude for the twelve black oxen which I am about to dedicate to you, make us to be the best fed and the strongest people in the world. Thus the king of the Matabels acts not only as a magician, but as a priest, for he prays and sacrifices to the spirits of his forefathers. End of section 13